Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change in Environmental Justice podcast brought to you by the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at ehn.org. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change. Folks, we have some really big news we are excited to share with you. If you listen to our year-end program, you know that we are now accepting applications for our next round of Agents of Change Fellows. That's right. If you are an early career scientist working on environmental justice issues and want to amplify your voice and spark some change and work with some really cool folks we have over here, we want to hear from you. You can get all of the information about the fellowship and you can apply at agentsofchangeinej.org. And a quick reminder that we rely on support to produce this program. And one of those supporters is Beauty Counter, a clean beauty brand on a mission to get safer products into the hands of everyone. Over 1,800 questionable ingredients are never used in their product formulations, and they advocate tirelessly for safer industry regulations because they believe beauty should be good for you. You can learn more at beautycounter.com. Today's guest is Lorraine Velez-Torres, an Agents of Change Fellow and Microbiology PhD candidate at the University of Puerto Rico Medical Sciences Campus. Torres talks about fungal spores and why they are an acute problem in Puerto Rico and how public health officials can better protect people in post-hurricane recovery efforts. Enjoy. All right. I am super happy to be joined by Lorraine Velez-Torres. Lorraine, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. And where are you today? I'm in San Juan, Puerto Rico, in my apartment. I decided to stay in today for this interview. Excellent. Excellent. What a beautiful place. I've never been there, but I, I want to visit so badly. That is on my list. You should come. It's beautiful. It's amazing. The people is amazing. The food is amazing. So you have to you have to come. So you were born there. You were born in Puerto Rico. And describe to me the place that you're from and anything about it that you think shaped the person you are today. Yeah. Uh, well, I grew up in Yauco, Puerto Rico, but I was born in Ponce. Uh, Yauco is more commonly known as the coffee town because of the higher number of coffee plantations in the area. And this town is located in the southwest region of Puerto Rico. It is usually very dry and warm uh, in terms of the climate. And I just wanted to bring some interesting facts about the land acknowledgement, about the Taino people and Jauco. And Jauco was named after the Jauco River, which itself comes from the Taino word Coayuco, meaning cassava plantation. And also the Taino natives consider Jauco the area of, or the capital of Boriken, which is how they called Puerto Rico, and was governed by Aweybana, the most powerful Taino cacique in the island. You mentioned coffee. So is, there, is coffee a big uh, uh, growth plant there? And if so, did you start drinking it at like a very young age because it was everywhere? <laughs> Yes, coffee is part of our culture in Puerto Rico and more in Jauco. So I drink it since I was little. Always my my parents made it for me and I'll take a sip. And today or nowadays, I always uh, drink it every day. We also have like a coffee maker at the lab. It's very, very 
uh, we need it. We need it. <laughs> so do you, last coffee question, do you uh-huh. drink coffee that's grown right there in the region or do you get it from, what, yes. what coffee are you drinking? Yes, uh, the coffee is from Puerto Rico. Not from Joko, but from Puerto Rico. My favorite Excellent. one. Excellent. That's excellent. And you, so I read that you said you fell in love with research at something called the Symbiosis Laboratory. My first question is, what is a symbiosis laboratory? And what about that experience, if you could tell us about it, made you want to pursue research as a career? Well, uh, in my third year of, as an undergraduate student, I had the opportunity to work in the symbiosis laboratory of Dr. Matias Cafaro. And a symbiosis laboratory studies the relationship between two or more biological species. In this case, uh, for my undergraduate research, I studied the relationship between actinobacteria and termites. And more specifically, I studied how these actinobacteria that were growing in the termites exoskeleton uh, help the termites fight fungal pathogens by producing uh, antifungal uh, metabolite, secondary metabolites. And this was like an amazing experience. I, I began to do research on my own. I, I learned about mentorship, about analyzing results, and most importantly for me about presenting those results to the community at local and national meetings. That's amazing to have that experience as an undergraduate. I, I know, I didn't even know what a scientific paper was until I, w- I was in my master's program, mm-hmm. which is embarrassing to admit as a science journalist, but it's just not something that was taught or, or really explained to us. So I'm wondering, how, how did that manifest in talking to the community? Was the research that you were learning about in the laboratory something you talked to community about, or was that engagement and training something separate? Initially, uh, I shared my research with the scientific community. And then throughout my master's and more specifically in my doctoral studies, I have the opportunity to share this science with the general public and with students. But initially it was just uh, to the scientific community. Great. And we will, we will talk about some of the research you're doing now and some of the community engagement. But first I wanted to find out what is a defining moment or event that shaped your identity up to this point? Well, that's a tough question. I think that I have more than one defining moment in my life. And one of them is when I decided to pursue a PhD in microbiology instead of a medical career, of a doctoral uh, in medicine. And this decision came when I graduated from my bachelor's in microbiology. I did a one-year master's in public health with concentration in epidemiology. And the goal for me was to, after finishing my master's, just go into med school. But once I did research in my master's in public health, I began thinking that through research, you can reach and impact a population as a whole. And as a medical doctor, you can, you do it individually in, in like one patient at a time. And that's when I decided, I always say, to go back to my roots, to go back to microbiology and do research. But in this, in this time on the biomedical sciences or biomedical area. 
So you are researching something that was brand new to me. I learned about this when I was editing an essay you wrote for us. And so you are researching the effects of Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico and what it had on indoor fungal spore concentrations. Mm -hmm. So first off, tell us what are fungal spores and why are they a problem? Yes, that is part of my research thesis. And to answer your question, fungal spores are like tiny, very microscopic seeds that under the right conditions, can become a new fungus. So they allow fungal reproduction. They pose a problem for respiratory health because since they are very small, they can gain the um, access your respiratory, upper and lower respiratory tract. And there they can exacerbate either allergic rhinitis, asthma, and other inflammatory respiratory conditions. And so what have you found so far in terms of how Hurricane Maria impacts fungal spore communities and prevalence in, in the region? Well, we have found very interesting results on fungal spore concentrations and on the fungal communities present in the home sample in the aftermath of the Hurricane Maria. And just to explain a little bit of how we did this research, we took our samples from homes that were categorized by different degrees of water exposure 12 and 22 months after Hurricane Maria. And we have found an interesting switch in the fungal populations present in these homes, and particularly between dry and flooded homes. And this switch is persistent almost two years after the hurricane. So we think that these results can be very helpful in the development of guidelines, guidelines for post-flood recovery and also to prevent uh, exacerbations of asthma, allergies, and other respiratory conditions. And we recently... Uh, submitted the manuscript in a peer-reviewed journal, so we are hoping it gets accepted and you can all read it. Excellent. And I should have asked this first, but when we're thinking about Puerto Rico and fungal spore concentrations, from what I understand, it's it's more of a problem there than in a lot of other places, and, and hurricanes certainly play into that. I'm wondering if you could talk about why uh, it's more of a problem where you're at than, say, where I'm at here in, in the northern United States. Yes, that's a great question. Thank you. So first of all, here in Puerto Rico, we have the highest asthma rates uh, when compared to the U.S. And also it's very important that since fungal spores are very tiny and microscopic, we cannot see them. And we breathe millions and millions of fungal spores daily. And we breathe even more here in Puerto Rico because we have also high levels, extremely high levels of fungal spores in our air, in our environment, maybe due to the different circumstances and environmental conditions that we have, high humidity levels, uh, flood-prone conditions, and the Caribbean, location in the Caribbean, uh, can can create these higher concentrations of fungal spores in the air. And this is very problematic for asthma because Specifically, the fungal spores that are less than 2.5 microns can enter your lower respiratory tract and there they can trigger those asthma symptoms or exacerbate those asthma symptoms. And here in Puerto Rico, we have those high prevalences, more specifically in our children, where they have twice uh, the prevalence in Puerto Rico when compared to the U.S. children. 
So a lot of environmental problems, we think of a very clear bad guy. We think of, you know, pollution or greenhouse gas emissions. We can point to a, a, a polluter or a, a, a oil and gas company. But fungal spores are natural, so mm-hmm. it's a little we can't we can't point our finger at somebody. So what do you see as some of the solutions or prevention strategies to keep people in Puerto Rico from inhaling these spores and exacerbating uh, exacerbating some of the respiratory symptoms? Yeah, you're right. Uh... In this case, the bad guy are fun guy, and we cannot kill our <laughs> all the fun guy in Puerto Rico. So the first solution that I have is education. It's educating our community to know about the fungal spore conditions in Puerto Rico, and more importantly, know about them. But because since they are microscopic, we cannot see them. We are not aware of their existence, and we are only aware if we see visible visible mold growing in our home or if we smell that moldy characteristic other but otherwise we are not aware that we are breathing millions and millions of fungal spores daily so the education is key and one thing that we can do is know about the fungal patterns in the island and here i want to bring out the work of my mentor dr benjamin bolaños He has been working throughout his life here in Puerto Rico. He established the Aeroallergen Station in San Juan, Puerto Rico, which is certified by the National Allergen Bureau from the American Academy of Asthma, Allergy, and Immunology. And he has been working 24-7 throughout the past 16 years so that the Puerto Rican population can use this information to manage their asthma symptoms. And... You can manage them by knowing these patterns. And the first pattern is that there is a calendar of fungal spores in Puerto Rico with the highest fungal spore concentrations being uh, shown in the rainy months of September to November. Also, fungi have a circadian rhythm. They have like a 24-hour cycle with the highest fungal spore levels during the early morning hours in the night while we sleep. So we recommend to use an air purifier with a HEPA filter while you sleep. So that way you limit the exposure to these fungal particles. And finally, fungal spores also increase after the rain. So we recommend that if you do not have to go out after the rain, you, you you don't do it. And this information can first help asthmatic patients to identify if fungal spores are one of their triggers and if they are then they can this information can help them manage their symptoms during these high levels of fungal spores so i know you've physically gone into the homes of some folks after hurricane maria and engaged with the public as part of your research and i'm wondering if you've communicated your research at all to the to those communities in puerto rico and in other non-scientists and if so Maybe some tips you have, you know, how did it go and what are some other science communication strategies that you have um, for people who are wanting to have more community engagement on the back end of their research? Yes, I have communicated my research and this is one of my favorite parts of science. I love science communication and I have communicated my research finding to students from all levels uh, with the hopes of making science more accessible, more interesting and fun for the future generations. And we are also interested in the group of my research to communicate these results with the community that opened their doors for us, that uh, 
help us to make this research and and find these things. But uh, due to COVID, we haven't been able to do to do that because it's a low income community. So many of these science communication uh, opportunities occurs with internet, with presentations online. So that's not possible. But we are hoping to go back to the community and make uh, an activity to show them the results and help them use this information to their benefit and to benefit their health. And in terms of science communication tips, I have some, I have five tips. The first one is to know your audience. Ask yourself, uh, who am I giving this presentation to? Who am I communicating this information? Are they fellow scientists or general public, friends, family, students? What's, what is their level of education? And then uh, try to create that presentation for them. The second goal, the second uh, tip is to know your goal. You can have more than one goal, and that could be share your findings, educate, advocate, uh, create awareness, and encourage change. And you should know your goals for your presentation. The third. Uh, the third tip is to be able to tell your message in a short and concise way. And for this, you can practice with an elevator pitch, or you can also practice uh, by telling your message in one minute, in under 30 seconds, uh, 15 seconds, eight seconds. It's a great exercise to, to tailor your message. The fourth um, tip is to avoid jargon. This is some, sometimes very difficult, you, you can do use technical words, but do try to define them. And the last tip is to be relatable. Try to tell a story about yourself, use analogies, try to humanize science and the scientists. And by that, by that way, you will connect better with your audience. Yeah, those are excellent tips. You know, I really like the very first one of knowing your audience. I mean, sometimes I would imagine as a scientist, it makes sense to have different uh, different messages, mm -hmm. strategies written down for different, obviously a policymaker, as opposed to a uh, a mother or father, a concerned mother or father, that, that's going to be vastly different messaging. So that's a really good place to start. And yes. those are great tips. Thank you. So you have, you are the co-founder of something that I'm going to try to pronounce. Let me see how I do here. Vistazo a la Ciencia. How was yes, that? Yes, that was great. That was great. Okay, Vistazo a la Ciencia, which means science at a glance. So tell me what this is and what are you all doing there? Yes, Vistazo a la Ciencia. I'm the co-founder and mentoring director. This is a nonprofit organization that aims to eliminate barriers between science and the Puerto Rican population or Hispanic uh, population. And we try to make science available, understandable. So in that way, the citizens can make decisions that contribute to their personal, intellectual and well-being. And we do this by different strategies, specifically by live stream interviews with experts. And we also make collaborations with other science organizations. And we also mentor students. We are a team of four, Dr. Rivera Mariani, which is one of my mentors and member of my thesis committee. 
uh, Albercia Mina Rodriguez, which is my friend and colleague. I met her through the PhD studies. And Andrea Samile Rodriguez is an undergrad student, and she became part of the team recently. She's also my cousin. <laughs> and well, Vistas a la Ciencia was founded in May of 2020 during the pandemic because we saw that uh, there were many science organizations, but they were talking only about COVID-19. COVID-19 pandemics, and we wanted to talk about science in general. And we have made over 60 live interviews with experts in different topics like COVID-19, public health, mental health, diabetes, cancer research, exercise, among other topics. We are currently having a collaboration with another science organization called STEAM 100 by 35, uh, they work for the visibility of Puerto Rican women in STEAM, in science, uh, technology, engineering, arts, and math. And we also have a, a series that is called Mentees on the Spotlight, where we are interviewing students about their research, their mentoring experience, and their tips for other students and fellow researchers. And currently, I'm also organizing a series of professional development workshops for undergraduate students from the Triveta organization at UPR Calle Campus. And uh, Vistazo a la Ciencia has been an amazing opportunity of growth. I have learned a lot about different topics outside my research area and also about science communication. And today, I was telling you, that the tables were turned because I'm usually the one asking the questions and now I'm here. <laughs> now I'm here and it's been very different and refreshing. So thank you. So as a fellow interviewer, how am I doing? So ah, you're doing great. I love your questions. <laughs> <laughs> That's great to hear. And we will definitely put a link to uh, Vistazo a la Ciencia into, into this podcast post so people can check that out. And, you know, one of the things that struck me about your research is when I think of uh, sometimes I wish I would have went into science and I I would love to go into like, uh, you know, trout or something, you know, like a fish that I love. <laughs> and I'm wondering what it is like being a fungi scientist. And if you ever thought you'd be doing that. Wow, I never thought so. I worked with fungi in my undergrad research because they were killing the termites and the actinobacteria were, were helping them. And I, I knew about fungi first there. And then I took a mycology class and a medical mycology and economy mycology. And I loved them. But then during my PhD studies, I initially uh, was uh, researching viruses because that's what I liked. I, I found them fascinating. But then I changed my mind. I went to the lab of Dr. Benjamin Bolaños and fungi. I love them. My favorite is Aspergillus. I'm very biased because he's one of the important <laughs> characters of my research. And I love them. They are beautiful. They are very challenging. I Sometimes they are very bad to me. They do not grow, but I love them. I love them. So perhaps this is a, a dumb question, but do you have to wear protective respiratory equipment when you work with some of these fungi? Uh, I I don't. <laughs> I, I do now because since we're in COVID times, we always use the mask, but I usually don't do it. Uh, my mentor doesn't also, but my other uh, 
colleague and MS student in the lab. When I began working with the fungi and opening the plates, she will get allergies. I, I think I'm I'm good. <laughs> so I so I'm assuming the spores are not they're not present when you're working with uh, the actual fungi. Well, once you touch the fungi, the spores will spread, and you will definitely uh, smell them and get them on your respiratory tract. So you should you should use that, but. Maybe I'm not that sensitive or allergic to them, to the ones I work with. Right. Gotcha. And I have two more questions for you. And one of them is, do you, you know, looking forward in your career, you've, you've stayed in, in Puerto Rico. I know you're not right where you were born, but you've stayed in the area there. Do you plan on kind of staying in Puerto Rico to pursue research and, and keep working with communities there? Yeah, that's the goal. I will love to give back to my community to my population and fellow Puerto Ricans. That's the goal. I would love to train outside and and go and maybe do a postdoc outside and then come back to my island. I'm very family-oriented. We're very close. So I would love to stay here in Puerto Rico. That's excellent. I don't know if you saw it, but we had a woman from Puerto Rico, Abrania Morero, who wrote... She wrote an essay uh, for Agents of Change, which was one of my favorites. And it had just, it was kind of almost like a love letter to the island. And uh, it was really beautiful. So I, I know where you're coming from, um, from having read her, read, read her piece. So Lorraine, this has been so much fun. My last question is, what is the last book that you read for fun? Well, I'm not much of a reader since I read so much for science, but the last book I read, goes very well with the season and it was Dracula by Bram Stoker. <laughs> I love Excellent. all yeah I love all kinds of horror stories. Yes, yes. We all need a diversion from the work we usually do, mm-hmm. the environmental stuff. Well, Lorraine, uh, I think that siren means the podcast is over. The streets of San Juan have spoken. Uh, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It was amazing. That is all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Lorraine. If you want to learn more about her research, read her new essay, The Hidden Culprit, Stealing People's Breath in Puerto Rico. You can find that by going to ehn.org and clicking Agents of Change under our Special Projects tab. And another reminder, I know I've mentioned it, but we are accepting applications for our next round of fellows. We want to hear from you. So if you or someone you know is interested in the program, please apply. You can do that and learn more about the fellowship at agentsofchangeinej.org. And while you're there, if you enjoy this podcast, be a part of it and help us out and click the donate button. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram, and please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, where you can listen to this and all past episodes. The Agents of Change podcast is written, recorded, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team. Dr. Amizota, Dr. Yoshida Ornelas-Vanhorn, Summer Ahmad, Gwen Raniger, Hannah Seo, and Aaron Gomez. Our team would love to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangenej at gmail.com with suggestions for the show, questions for the fellows, reviews, or just to chat. And the best way to keep tabs on us is to sign up for our monthly newsletter. The Agents of Change newsletter is at the homepage, agentsofchangenej.org. And you can sign up there and we'll send it right to your inbox. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity and science and health going. 
Join me next time when I speak with Annie Huang, an Agents of Change fellow and a medical student at the University of California in San Francisco. Have a great week, folks.